0: everybody bring it in we are back a friday edition of the read option coming to you on a beautiful sunny cicada filled afternoon here uh in northern virginia both scotty and i both residing in northern virginia and i mentioned that because our man scotty miller joins us here for today's pod scotty how you doing buddy
1: What's up? I'm good. The cicadas are a symphony. I'm telling you what. And hey, Jeff, we match today.
0: We do. We do. Bad for
1: radio, but it's nice. we, we match shirt, <laughs> the colors of shirts. <laughs>
0: it's definitely not the best radio. Maybe we'll just put out. We'll put out a video clip so people can see it. Uh, yeah, man. It's uh, i do the cicadas are brutal.
1: It's weird. It's- I've never experienced it. We never had it on the West Coast, so this is the first time I'm seeing the the big oh. you know outburst. They're it's horrible.
0: Wild. They're horrible. Like I what's crazy about the cicadas is like i'll go out my front door and i'm sitting inside right now windows closed and i can hear them from the outside i was listening back to the podcast i did on wednesday and i could hear the freaking cicadas in the background like it is obnoxious they literally it sounds like there's a siren going off i feel like i'm in like 1960 like cold war era when they would put off like they would send off like warning alarms for like a nuclear bomb that could potentially go off and you would have to like get you know shelter in place and all that kind of shit like it is so brutal and it's weird cuz you can hear the the cicadas that are close to you you know like the ones that are in your bushes and your trees and like around your yard but then because there's so many of them there's like a second layer to them that's just like this constant undertone of a loud siren that's just brutal yeah. now you're out in more of like the boondocks a little bit compared to me how bad is yeah, it a lot out more trees there?
1: a lot more trees it's not bad in terms of them flying around uh yet fingers crossed but uh the sound is unbelievable it's gorgeous i love it there's way more trees out here up in the mountains and and i'll tell you what I'm, i might take my microphone out there and record because that it would help me sleep it's 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 a sound unlike anyone i've ever heard before
0: dude they're ho- they're horrible like it's and funny too man because growing up we had cicadas in the philly area like every summer now some years were worse than others but i'm pretty sure we had them every summer like i remember them every summer growing up and this year because it's this brood as they call it, like every 17 years you get like another round of these like really horrible ones it's Mating like season. Yeah, dude. It's just, and they're gross. Like they only live for a little bit. They leave their shells and like their insides just fall out of them. They're truly horrifically terrible creatures. And I have a friend who sent me a Snapchat and I don't know what he was thinking, but put like six of them on his face. Like, he's just not freaked out by them at all. And, and I saw that and, like, wanted to actually, like, physically throw up. And to say the least, they threw an interesting wrinkle on Memorial Day weekend. I feel like I can't go outside, dude. Like, I get anxiety leaving the house now because I don't want them on me. I don't want them around me. I don't want them flying by my ear. I can't I can't handle all these freaking bugs, dude. They, they drive me up a wall. Um, but how was your Memorial Day weekend? Did you do anything fun, exciting? Where were you at? What were you up to?
1: It was great. I was down in uh, the not so great state of Maryland, but I did a little fishing on the, uh, on the Potomac river. Mm. It was, it was a lot of fun. I didn't catch anything, but no. uh, I, I was at a place where I could go out in, in the backyard and, and uh, fish right off the dock there on the Potomac.
0: Dude, I um, can't, I can't do fishing, man. Really? Yeah. Oh, so, it's so here, here's the thing, dude, like for me, I have an irrational fear of fish. Like everyone has that thing that freaks them out. I can't, I can't, dude, I like cicadas are a new one, <laughs> but like the fish, like any, any fish, it, it terrifies me. In fact, the last time I went fishing was last summer. It was just about it. It was Memorial day actually of 2020. And I was at the Jersey shore and it was a, it was a chilly weekend and I was out there and my dad had come up with me and, and we were out and we were fish, We were surf fishing, right? Which is like, you lay on the beach, you get a really long beach rod. And it, it's honestly a lot of fun. And I love the physical activity of fishing, but I never, I, if I could fish and be guaranteed that I never actually catch anything, I would be so happy because I, the idea of, of reeling, like reeling in a fish, pulling it out of the water and then having to like touch it and get it off the hook. Like, and I know this makes me soft. Like I'll first want to put my hand up, but like, I, I cannot do it. And my dad was like, Oh, you're good. Like I'm going to head back to the house. And it's totally second nature. I was like, yeah, yeah, you're good. Go ahead. And then I had this realization when I got a bite on the rod and I'm fighting it, it, it crawled in my mind. Like, Oh shit. Like if I catch a fish, I'm going to have to take it off. Like, I can't have my dad here to take it off for me because I am that much of a wimp that I would actually need my dad to take the fish off for me.
1: Well, no, I mean, that, that's understandable, Jeff. They're slimy and gross. I get it. You get a little glove, you get a little pair of pliers, you're good,
0: go. Dude, game it, over. You're being too nice. I, I, I deserve ridicule <laughs> for this. I deserve to be made fun of and mocked for this ridiculous fear that I have. I mean, I, I'm, I'm in my mid-20s. I shouldn't be afraid of a fish and yet if i'm like if i see fish i get like an anxiety attack because of it like it's absolutely horrible do you eat fish though jeff because i know
1: some people in your family won't
0: i will not i don't (laughs) i don't like fish i like shellfish you know you want to go shrimp Uh crab you know lobster like i can i can do the shellfish but i can't do like a salmon you know i can't do like uh-huh. tilapia you know that that's that's not in my in my uh wheelhouse no no way there's <laughs> there's something about the the fish there's something about the fishiness like when someone says like oh this is fishy it's not a positive connotation you know fishy is never a positive thing and yet people like want to actively eat fish it just ne- it ugh, just never made sense to me i don't, I don't know um I, but again,
1: I had to so <laughs> yeah well you and you grew yeah, up on survival. the survival <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. you grew up on the coast. You guys are always worried about your fat intakes and your avocado True. toast and all that crap. Um, but... He nailed weird. it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, weird, you know, uh, fears aside, Scotty, uh, there's been some crazy stuff going on in the sports world. Uh, and on Wednesday's pod, we talked about the breaking news that came out Wednesday morning about the Boston Celtics, re- you know, reshuffling their front office and we went to the Naomi Osaka conversation did a whole bunch of that stuff and about I don't know 20 minutes after I was recording the pod on Wednesday the news comes out that coach K is going to retire at the end of next year which I had heard some rumblings of you know I, I work with some people who are very well connected in the uh, college basketball sphere one of our host chris patola is actually the son-in-law of coach k he uh, was an assistant coach at duke and he ended up marrying coach k's daughter and i was working with chris on friday and you know he had kind of alluded to you know maybe we're starting to come to the end Well, as it turns out he knew this was coming because this is a decision that comes you know with a lot of thought and intention and conversation with your family and other people around it especially when it's a figure of the stature of Mike Krzyzewski and you know coach K at Duke like it's as synonymous as apple pie you know it's it is up there with one of the most influential coaches uh, and pairings that we have in this world of sports so I'm curious just right off the bat Scott I mean what was your reaction when you first heard this because I mean Knowing it, it might be coming was a little bit different than actually seeing the news pop up. And, and, you know, he just had a press conference just about an hour ago where he was kind of talking about why he made this decision. So
1: what were what was your reaction when you saw that? Yeah, that press conference with Cascada playing, that's hilarious. Go check it out on, the, on Twitter. If you haven't seen it. Um, no, man, we talked a lot about this a couple of months ago with, Roy, with Roy Williams at North mm-hmm. Carolina. Right. So uh, a lot of the uh, similar feelings um, of course, it's, it's a legend that you feel like you're, you're losing, um, you know, they're not necessarily dead, but like their time at the program is over their The page is turned uh, a new chapter unveiled. And uh, I, I mean, Krzyzewski built that program. Oh yeah. So, and, and we can say a lot about uh, about modern day North Carolina, obviously Dean Smith prior to, uh, to Roy Williams there. Um, but a lot of the modern day North Carolina basketball was built on, uh, on Roy Williams. So uh, it's, it's, it's weird to see. And, and again, a lot of these things uh, you know, it's, it's time. It, we knew it was coming and all that, but it's going to be weird to see him on the, not roaming the sidelines there and uh, uh, with all the Cameron crazies. Um, yeah. I, I, I mean, kudos to him. Hell of a career. He turned around two pro, he built two programs really at army West point and, and, uh, and at Duke. So uh, good for him. He's, he's produced a lot of quality basketball players.
0: Yeah. And, and, you know, so he was coached by Bob Knight at army and then inevitably took over for Bob Knight as, as the coach there. And then, you know, when he went to Duke, Duke had had some sort of level of success prior to coach K right. Uh, Bill Foster was the head coach. They had gone to a few elite eights. They were kind of in that like middle tier of college basketball programs. You remember coach K took over, at duke in 1980 all right so this this year this past year was his 42nd year and his first three seasons they did not make it to the ncaa tournament but since 1984 he has only missed the tournament twice in 1995 when he had back surgery and ended up not being able to coach for the majority of the season and then this past year when he was dealing with COVID and kind of everything else that was going on in the world. And, you know, we, we talked a lot about this, like you said, a couple, a couple months ago when we, when Roy Williams announced he was retiring, which it wasn't necessarily shocking because again, these guys are getting old. Like we're getting to the point where there's a lot of changing the guard college sports in general are changing at a rapid pace, particularly this year between the name image and likeness uh, and, and that now becoming legalized as, as of July 1st and the transfer portal where now everybody is allowed one free one-time transfers, um, without any, ha- without any penalty, without having to waiting out for a year. And now Chris Patola said, and again, he's as well connected to coach K as literally anybody, you know, that coach K is the grandfather to his to his kids. Um, uh, But he said that that wasn't necessarily part of it because Coach K has been championing a lot of these changes. But when you look at his career accomplishments, right, and the decision to retire again makes a lot of sense. He's been doing this a long time. And for all of the kind of bullshit stuff that comes with Coach K, which can be frustrating, you know, sometimes he's got a flair for the dramatics. Sometimes, you know, you wonder, obviously, there's been reports about Zion getting, you know, his bag under the table. And that's kind of the world of college sports. So I try not to let that affect the way that I view these, you know, these people and in these figures, but coach K's career is just astonishingly brilliant. I mean, 1,170 wins, all time leader in wins in division one men's basketball, five championships, 12 final fours, 15 ACC tournament championships 12 ACC regular season titles three-time coach of the year and then on top of that you add everything he did for USA basketball you know after the 2004 yeah. olympics in, in athens they were usa basketball was in a bad place i think the us got the bronze medal that year or they didn't medal in 04 it was one of the yeah. two and he took that that team and said all right 2008 we're changing we're changing this shit and now that's since gone over to, to Greg Popovich, which is a good thing. Um, but what stands out to you as, as an observer, as a fan of college basketball, what is the lasting legacy, the imprint on your mind of someone like Coach K?
1: I think on the basketball court, it's the the development of players. I mean, look at even I think of guys like like J.J. Redick, who is was probably – he was a great shooter coming out of high school, but – uh, the, the kind of development that gave J.J. Redick the success he had in the NBA career came from Coach K's staff at Duke and, and Coach K, um, and it's unmatched. Like even you, you don't think about it a lot because a lot of times Duke's just cranking out superstars that hit the NBA, and it's like, oh, yeah, duh, they were supposed to be good. They went to Duke, but, um, but there are tons of guys years over who have come out of Duke and had successful careers in the NBA uh, because of the development they got while they were in college.
0: Yeah. I, and that's a great point. And, and I would add on to that too, Scotty, the, ad, the his ability to adapt, you know, like when he started and, and the, the whole Duke philosophy, the whole, the whole thing that they used to do every single year with Duke was we're going to recruit you and you're going to stay here for four years and you're going to get your education. It's an education first, it's basketball second. And when John Kyle Parry in Kentucky, started to change that narrative and, and basically just creating this whole concept of the one and done. There's a lot of coaches who got left by the wayside. You know, it took a long time for a lot of coaches and and programs to kind of adapt to that. And coach K was pretty quick. You know, you think about that Jaleel Okafor team and, and uh, Tyus Jones, right? I mean, they, they adapted quick. They went from the Kyle Singlers and the JJ Reddicks of the world to all right we we got to recruit one and done we're going to recruit one and done to the point where they had the number 1 number 2 and number 3 recruits in the country all sign with duke in a one and done between RJ Barrett who was the actual number 1 recruit in the country then it was Zion and then it was Cam Reddish and all three of them committed to duke and that team was was a juggernaut and they ended up falling up falling a little bit short in the uh, in the tournament but just an objectively like a really really great great team uh and coach k is directly responsible for that and it's the adapting not only to the way recruiting would be would, would go but in development you know understanding what what guys wanted you know guys didn't want to go to a place where they're going to go get an education and then maybe go to the nba guys just wanted to go to the fucking nba and and being able yeah. to change it and you know what's amazing is they're so polarizing you know duke is as polarizing a brand as we have in sports you know duke men's basketball you either love or you hate they're up there with the yankees they're up there with alabama they're up there with the lakers and the celtics and and you know go ahead and list down the name of and the patriots right these these teams and programs that we just can't stand or you absolutely adore them and there is no middle ground and again coach k and this is kind of where i want to go next in this conversation is that when you move on from someone like coach K there's a difference between you know Oklahoma losing Bob Stoops right Bob Stoops is an awesome coach he's a hall of famer he's a great coach I mean, top 25 to 50 coaches of all time in college football and i think that's probably pretty fair and, and to, to say but that's different than replacing Nick Saban right the difference between replacing a goat you know one of the greatest of all time compared to just a hall of famer is different because Oklahoma went from Bob Stoops to Lincoln Riley. So my question to you is, and looking back throughout history, when John Wooden left UCLA, UCLA has not, they've won one national championship since then. And they have not come anywhere close to that brand that you think of when you think UCLA is an all-time great Indiana, they lose Bob Knight, one of the all-time greatest coaches in college basketball. They have not come close to that again in college football when bear Bryant left Alabama, it wasn't until Nick Saban got there that they became Alabama again. So what do you think is the, why do you think that happens? Like, why do you think it's so hard to replace these guys? Is it as much just the stature and the pressure as much as anything else? Or do you think it, it has what, more to do with like the actual coaches themselves?
1: No, I it's, I think it's both. I think the, the coaches are just that great that to become all-time greats that that you not only put them on this pedestal and and create a statue of them 20 years before their their careers even over uh i mean how long has it been called coach k court at cameron Indoor? yeah right and Chasevsky uh, right yeah <clears throat> and 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 we uh, you see this all over college sports it's not just uh, at duke um but it's that it's partially that that these coaches are just that good and then when they are that good you build up these expectations that are almost unrealistic is hmm. UCLA ever going to win 10 national championships in a row again? Like John, they had with John Wooden. No. Are they going to win one? Maybe. Are they going to win two? Probably not. It's unrealistic. Uh, but in your mind, if you grew up watching that era of basketball, you're like, like, this is what the standard is. Why can't we live up to this standard? Well, because it's an impossible standard to live up to. So hmm. you got to kind of hype it down a little bit. If, if you're a fan of, of one of these programs that loses a legendary coach like that. And, and just kind of baseline yourself a little bit and and understand the realities while coach K has been doing it perennially in, uh, in college basketball, it's because he's so good at adapting, like we talked about. Um, But you don't know what you're getting with a new coach, especially a new first time head coach. So um, just, uh, just kind of baseline yourself with the reality of what college basketball is now. uh, And, and what, uh, the expectation is for your program based on the fact that you now have a new face at the head of the program. I can't stand when they do this and and it's like, uh, all of a sudden it's the coach's fault because they had a winning season, but didn't go to the final four or whatever it is. Didn't go to the college football playoff and, and you've got three years or you're out. They did this shit a lot of Texas, right? The last couple of years. Um, and, and somehow it's the coach's fault. I don't subscribe to all that. So lower your expectations, people, everything's fine. You'll get there program takes building
0: yeah and i think too when you're when you're accustomed to winning all the time it's hard to to go back you know i mean we we saw it with patriots fans like playing a
1: video game i mean come on
0: what are you (laughs) it's hard man i mean because i it's gonna be the same thing whenever alabama moves on from nick saban because there's, there's no world where, like, Dabo – everyone thinks Dabo, because he played at Alabama as a walk-on, is going to eventually leave Clemson and take over for Nick Saban at Alabama. And I don't see that happening. If Dabo is going to leave college, it's going to be for the NFL. It's not going to be for a job. He's beaten Alabama. He's been as good as Alabama over the last seven years. So there is no incentive for Dabo to go to Nick Saban. And then on top – or to go to Alabama and replace Nick Saban because – we just talked about it, how hard it is to actually do that. And I think I think the mystique of, you know, it, it's as much pressure as it is. It's just like, holy shit, like I'm the next guy, you know? And, and it's this internal pressure that you put on yourself to be like, I have to continue this legacy. I have to take what Nick Saban built. I have to take what Bill Belichick built. And I have to add on top of it. But realistically, it is rare for schools to have back-to-back hires that are great. You know, you can just look yeah. at it across all sports. It's incredibly Oklahoma's the hard to do exception,
1: I think. Yeah, Oklahoma's the exception.
0: And even still, they've been to, what, two college football playoffs under Lincoln Riley? Yeah. So, two, and, no. yeah, two. The, the Rose Bowl year and then the Jalen Hurts yeah, year. You're right. um, and in both years, they end up losing in, in, the, in the semifinals. But I do think Lincoln Riley is one of the best coaches in college football. And you're you're completely right. Like having back-to-back hires like that is tough. You know, usually the best you can hope for is a situation like when Nick Saban left Michigan and uh, Michigan State, State, and then uh, Mark D'Antoni came came in, right? And when LSU moved on from Nick Saban, then they bring in Les Miles. You know, like that's usually the best you can think of, you can hope for, which is a really really good head coach, and then followed up with another like really solid head coach you know yeah. and, and it's rare to have a coach that'll win a national championship and then you bring in your next coach that will also win a national yeah. championship and i that think just doesn't part, really of happen. The
1: ex- part of the expectation thing too is that that a lot of times the narrative and the media is like oh well this guy has been groomed to be the next head coach of whatever program yeah. by the this legendary head coach so they have to be good because how can you not be good if you're groomed by uh by this legendary coach so that's another part of the, the expectation narrative that needs to kind of just like dull itself down a little bit.
0: Well, and that's what's interesting about this, this hire as well, right? Because Lincoln Riley did that. You know, Lincoln Riley sat for a couple of years and, and Bob Stoops handpicked his replacement. Urban Meyer steps down to Ohio State. He handpicks Ryan Day. Roy Williams retires at UNC. He handpicked Hubert Davis. And now Coach K stepping down, and they already have their coach in waiting, who's John Shire, who was on the the Kyle Singler teams back in, I think it was 2010. 10. You know, yeah. with the was it with the Zellers? Who else was on that? Who else was on that team? Or the Plumleys? Zellers was, was uh, North Carolina. North Carolina. It was um, the Plumleys then. Yeah,
1: Plumleys were there. One of the um, Plumleys, anyway. Was that, was that the year they they almost lost to Butler on that amazing
0: it, three? It was. Passed. It was he, uh, John Shire was on that team. Um, and I I think there's something to it. I think when you're taking over a program of that magnitude, give yourself a year, you know, I mean, I don't know what to expect out of Duke. They're in the top five in in recruiting classes again, which is pretty consistent. They had a really bad season last year with a bunch of weird storylines. The Jalen Johnson storyline was really bizarre. And we talked about that on this pod is before too, but I think there's something to kind of handpicking your replacement, like knowing yeah. that this is going to be the guy who's taking over for us and you're going to get to sit there. And he's already been on staff for the last couple of years as an assistant coach. But, you know, and, and some of the Brad Stevens rumors and, you know, some of that, so much of that shit is just funny to me. I think it's kind of smart because now you're not going to worry about the successor all year. So that media storyline that you were talking about isn't, isn't going to be there. You know, you'll see pieces kind of pop up here and there, but it's going to be this is the farewell tour for Coach K. Now, I can tell you, I I don't, I'm I'm in the weird camp of I don't really have a position one side or the other between Coach K between Duke and UNC or Coach K and Williams. I like Roy Williams more just because he's kind of got this like folksy attitude about him. He seems like an awesome guy, but. Duke, UNC, I've never, I've kind of just disliked both programs for the most part in my, uh, in, in my days as a, as a college basketball fan. Um, So when, when Very people. You. <laughs> yeah. Right. Just hate everybody. That's not Villanova. That's pretty much <laughs> how I, how I roll. And I always liked Kansas. I was, I was always kind of like a semi-Kansas fan, Um, but it, it's just going to be really interesting to kind of see how this whole thing plays out because a lot of people throughout this whole year are this, this farewell tour is going to feel kind of gross. You know, there's going to be moments oh, yeah. where it's just like, especially
1: oh. on ESPN. Oh, yeah. Geez.
0: Right. Like there's just going to be so <laughs> many little things about this that just come like, Oh, do we, okay, fine. Like, yeah, well, I guess we're doing this You know what I mean? Like it's just going to be a constant cycle of coach K getting his fucking, you know, tugged up. On, and, and I'm just like, I'm not, I'm not here for it. You know, let me know when it's over. Let me know when it's the last 10 games and then I'll tune in for it, but I don't want to hear about it for the rest of the time. Not if you're going to make this an announcement in June. Oh yeah. We're <laughs> going to hear about it. We're going to hear about it for far too long. Um, but yeah, it'll be interesting. We'll see how John Shire does Duke, a premier program, a premier, uh, you know, brand in, in sports, Duke basketball. And I'm, I'm fascinated to see how this goes. Cause it's not going to be easy. Um, all right, let's take a quick break. And then one of the reasons I have you on is you are as locked into the MLB right now as anybody. And I've been keeping an eye on it. I've been doing my reading and my research to make sure I'm up to date, but this whole season seems really really weird. And so I want your help. We're going to break down kind of where we stand right now in the MLB uh, as we're just about what like a third of the way through the season.
1: Exactly. We're exactly way We're
0: exactly season. a third of the way. Uh, you you mentioned this earlier on some solo stuff that you did. We were approaching almost the same amount of games played this year as the entire regular season was last year. And I'm going to tie that in to part of this conversation coming up next. All right, we're going to switch gears a little bit. Um, a lot of it, actually, going from college basketball to the MLB because we are at the one-third mark. But more importantly than that, we are – just about to hit the same amount of total regular season games played in 2021 as was played for the entire 2020 MLB season. And the reason I want to start with this, Scotty, is because, and I'm not trying to put an asterisk on the 2020 season. I'm not trying to invalidate the the Dodgers World Series win, though you may win I am. <laughs> I would love that. Um,
1: I just love that nobody cares that they won the World Series in 2020. <laughs> The, the
0: you're right outside of LA, even in LA, they probably don't really care all that much if we're being honest. Oh, it's no, like the Dodgers do. and the Lakers are like the two teams that they actually give a shit about in LA. But the, so the reason I want to start with this though is because we've seen now the impact that COVID has had, because when you put it in the, in the context of we're a third of the way through the season. Oh, and also this is the same full length regular season in 2020. It's a reminder of how much we lost out on last year. And just how different the season was and we think about how much baseball is left to be played between the trade deadline uh, potential injuries that are going to happen that will of course affect the way that you know the the rest of baseball kind of plays off the rest of the year, but also teams getting hot at the right time because baseball is such a streaky sport that when you get hot in October you know, in September at the regular end of the regular season, if, that, if you're starting to get things clicking by then you can come in as a wild card. You can come in as, you know, uh, let's say like a middle of the road, but you, your division's bad and you still win 85, your division anyway.
1: Six win team. Yeah. somewhere. Yeah, like ex-
0: exactly. And you can go on a run and potentially win the world series like that. Those are the kinds of things that happen consistently. And this whole MLB season feels pretty I don't want to say, I feel like all over the place is too like basic of a way to kind of describe it, but it's pretty, it it feels completely wide open. You know, uh, you can look in the AL. I don't know who is good in the AL. And if this was in 2020, you know, we would have Tampa Bay with the best record in all of baseball. You know, we would have the Chicago White Sox winning the Central, the Oakland A's, the Houston Astros, and then the surprise Boston Celtics who really seemed to well, be they play a- basketball, Jeff. Oh, it's like, Boston mean the Red Sox. Sox. I've been <laughs> watching too much basketball, man. The Boston Red Sox who, you know, we all thought was going to be a bottom tier team in the AL. And right now they're the number one wildcard team. So take this any direction you want to go with it, Scotty. But in thinking about what last year was, Do we feel gypped at all? Or do you still look at 2020 and say like, no, like that is ultimately the Dodgers were the best team. It just, we had such a condensed season that, that, that was kind of how it played out.
1: I mean, it's hard to argue with that lineup and their starting rotation, which got better this year, adding Trevor Bauer. But I do think, um, in the end last year, the, the best team in the league did win. (laughs) (laughs) I just <laughs> shuddered at the thought of saying that. Um, in any case, last year was what a sixty-two. I think it was sixty-two game season, but um, it, it it was a season where every game mattered because yeah. the way they reformatted the playoffs, um, it was it was an eighteen playoff in, in each in each league, uh, so every game mattered. Um, yeah. and and really, what I've seen through the first third of the season is that sentiment hasn't gone away mm-hmm. despite the fact that we now have 162 game full season um that that we're all so accustomed to and the players are so accustomed to but the the spirit of that 62 game season hasn't um uh, hasn't really dwindled and that's why i think you're seeing what what you're calling is wide open you don't know what what is happening right uh april and may mattered just as much to and you you get all this rhetoric after, out of spring training anyway every year. Oh well, every, every game matters to it. One hundred and sixty two games is a long season. So to to think that uh, to have the the rhetoric of that mindset and then actually physically going on the field and having that mindset uh, mm-hmm. is is a totally different story. And we're seeing it with teams like. Uh, like the Red Sox, who were a little bit ahead of schedule, I think. Like Kansas City, who had a hot April, have cooled off a little bit in uh, in uh, in May here. Um, like the Giants, for my Giants, for example, nobody expected them to be even in the top um, top two in in the NL West at this point, and they're sitting there in first place uh, as we speak on June third. So I think the uh, the the spirit of that that short season sprint where, where it is like every game matters has, has gone through uh, through at least the first third of the season. I think June's going to be a little bit of a turning point. Cause we're going to start to hit hotter days. We're going to start to hit um, a lot more travel on these guys. Um, and we're going to start to uh, we'll have the break of course, in July, but, but that, that long slog of a summer, especially if you're traveling long distances from coast to coast uh, or even coast to Midwest in, in those cases, uh, it, it, it is draining. So this might be a bit of a, a turning point as we, as we start to hit summer baseball, but it's been fun to watch. I'll tell you that much. It,
0: it has been fun to watch. And, and I think you're, you're, you're dead on. I mean, and again, not trying to disparage your, your giants who have played exceptionally well all season, like no doubt about it, but given the way, given the roster and the talent on there, I think even you would have to agree that they've overachieved to this point.
1: Oh yeah, uh, look. You know, th- like I said, there's teams all over the the league that have done that. Kansas City's one. Boston has been one. Um, um, well, the Cubs, and how do you- I would think for for as as under undermanned as their bullpen has been, have stepped up really and overachieved in
0: that division. But and here's the thing though, Scott, is that none of us know, right? Like none of us actually know who is good and who is not, right? Because we won't know until the playoffs. We won't know until 162 teams. 162 games get played but i look at a team like tampa bay last year and tampa bay made it all the way one game away from winning the world series and yet you could look at them based off of their roster based off of the kind of money ball style that they play the heavily influenced by analytics style because they're a smaller market and they don't have the same kind of revenue and resources that teams like the Yankees or the Dodgers or the giants or the Red Sox or any of those teams have. And what they were able to do in such a short time made a lot of people feel like did Tampa Bay just overachieve because it was a short, you know, window. And what we've seen so far this year is that they've kind of confirmed that it wasn't, they kind of confirmed that they have, that they weren't a fluke. But if we get to the end of the season, because on paper, The Yankees should be a better team. Even the Red Sox should be a better team than Tampa Bay. But Tampa Bay lost their ace in Blake Snell this year. And yet they're still in first place. And they still have the number one record in all of baseball. So it's hard to look back on that. But the argument was fair at the time, right? During their run, the argument and the question, even if it was a little maybe unnecessary to bring it up and we should have just appreciated what the Tampa what Tampa Bay did and appreciate having sports back the argument was still fair it was still a fair question to ask is this just a fluke did they just get hot at the right time or is this sustainable and including what we've seen in 2020 plus now what we've seen in 2021 I think it's completely reasonable to say that it's fair
1: and really, Jeff, for the for the Rays, it's just been the month of May. They start off thirteen and fifteen. They were dead last in the American League East after mm-hmm. after April was said and done. Uh, they're thirty five and twenty nine. Sorry, I didn't see what they did last night. <clears throat> they got the best record in Major League Baseball, uh, and they're they're making up for it on the pitching side with Tyler Glass. Now, he's if you ask me for an All Star starter out of the AL right now, yeah, it would, be, it would be Glass. Now he's picking it up. He's in top fifty in pitching WAR, uh, which is really tough to do. Uh, considering the amount of, of pitchers they throw relievers into that stat too. So that's really tough to do. And then, um, and, uh, and Joey Wendell is, is one of one of the, the top 25 war players on the, on the offensive side of the ball. Uh, so that they're, and of course they've got a Rosa Rosarena who's one of my favorite, but he's certainly my favorite name to say in, uh, in all of baseball. Um, you were hearing people sing it like the Macarena. It's ridiculous. Anyway. Uh, so they, they've, They've covered their the spots that needed covering and they and they're doing it with better baseball in the month of May. Um, that division is tough though, obviously the uh, the Red Sox are better than we thought and the Yankees are the Yankees. even uh, uh, um, Baltimore has has had a, a good start to the season and and so is uh, so is Toronto so uh, we'll see there but uh, but but Tampa's Tampa's doing what they needed to do to uh, yeah. to assert their dominance in that division.
0: Yeah, I, 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 definitely agree. Um, I want to kind of switch gears a little bit because I, th- I think we're kind of in agreement on that. You know, you can, it's, there's nothing we can say to invalidate last year. Cause it's just, a, it's an unanswerable question. Right. So I'm looking now, baseball has as many young stars as I can remember in recent years. And the guy who gets all of the love and attention is Fernando Tatis who deserves it i mean tatis is incredible i think he's an awesome face he's an awesome personality he's the exact kind of guy you want to build a team around and that's why he got that massive contract despite only playing really one and a half seasons in the in the mlb i don't even know if you can say a full one and a half um but my question to you is when you just when you look at the statistics right and the problem with baseball statistics is they have become so advanced that your basic things like um home runs well i guess home runs still matter but even just like rbis batting average like they've all become kind of watered down a little bit um but i look at a guy as much as i appreciate fernando tatis but i look at what vlad guerrero jr has done this year and my jaw hits the floor i mean for you guys that don't know i mean he is right now third in all of the mlb in batting average batting 335 he's leading the league in home runs at 17 home runs a game he is also second in the league in uh, in RBIs at 45. And by the way, he's tied for fourth in the league for total hits. So this guy, which, you know, he had a ton of hype and a ton of excitement around him going in, you know, obviously being the son of a, Hall, a borderline Hall of Fame player and Vlad Guerrero being this big, heavy power hitter who was also a great athlete but felt a little oversized. He sheds off 45 pounds this off season comes back and he's been unstoppable. He's, he's been absolutely unstoppable. I mean, he hits for contact. He hits for power. He's been playing great defense. They moved him over to first base. So, which it actually suits him a little bit easier. He's got a great glove. He made an incredible defensive play just the other day uh, where he, you know, slides, tags out the runner at first base uh, on a, on a backhander that he dived out for and they had to run. He dove at the base. It was an incredible, incredible play. So when I look at some of these younger stars that exist in baseball right now, it's hard not to look at Vladimir Guerrero as, or Vladimir Guerrero jr. I should say as the guy, you know, because Tatis has the market appeal. And I think Vlad will eventually get there. I don't know if it's because he plays in Toronto, but, you know, Tatis plays in San Diego. You know, is San Diego a a different, that much different of a market than Toronto? Is it just because Toronto's in Canada that, you know, it doesn't get the same level of attention? Um, I, I just, I really admire what we've seen out of Vladdy because there's been a lot of concerns with him from a, physical standpoint like is he going to be able to hold up uh, is he going to be able to play himself into the shape that we need to see him at in order to be one of the top 5 players in baseball and so far there's a legitimate argument to be made that Vladimir Guerrero Jr has been the best hitter in baseball all season now again it's tough because the traditional statistics you know it's kind of hard to really value and measure what the traditional statistics say anymore, but you know, Scotty as as I'm sitting here waxing poetic about how incredible Vladimir Guerrero jr. Has been. And I say that I think he might actually be the best hitter in baseball right now. How far off do you think I am on that?
1: Not very, um, really, there's one guy that other guy that comes to mind in, uh, in Texas, the lone bright spot in that abysmal Texas offense, uh, Adolis Garcia, El Bombi. Yeah, uh, he's 28. He's a rookie. He has he's played in Cuba. He's played in Japan. Uh, he finally has has come over to the to Major League Baseball to play. He had six at bats all of last year. I mean, six, right? And and he is he went off in uh in uh in May. I mean, just absolutely on a tear. 321, 11 home runs uh 27 RBIs five stolen bases I, I, like that's have a month my man um and he's not lining it up uh, on advanced stat metrics but this is a guy who's winning ball games for Texas uh which are few and far between but again he's the lone bright spot in that offense this is an offense that has still has Joey Gallo who's uh hit 35 home runs and strikeout 347 times a year so yeah um so uh, he's leading the league right now. Uh, uh, Garcia is out of least Garcia it, with 16 home runs. So
0: No, he's actually, he's tied for, for third, technically. Oh, he's Vl- third now. Vladi, oh, yeah. Vladi has, yeah. Vladi's got 17. Ronald, uh, Ronald Acuna has 17. So they're both tied. And then it's uh, Garcia and Tatis at 16. And She-ho, Sho- uh, Shohei Otani at 15. Now, anyone who's listening to this podcast knows how I feel about Shohei. I think that dude is as incredible of a sports talent that I've ever seen. Like, it is so rare to see somebody do that. Like, he is literally one of the best pitchers in baseball and one of the best hitters in baseball at the same time. That is nuts. It's, it's weird to see, because, like, my thought with Otani was, like, he'll be mediocre in one or the other, right? He'll either be an amazing hitter and a pretty good pitcher or he'll be a really good pitcher and a pretty good hitter. I didn't think it would be top five in the league in both, which there's a legitimate argument to be made that he is, especially when he's healthy. And now that he kind of has gotten his elbow, right. And it seems like he's back. I mean, the dude hits the ball 110 miles an hour off the bat. And he also throws the ball 102 miles an hour. Like, that is insane. Yeah. And he
1: allows, he allows some of the least hard-hit contact in, mm-hmm. in all of Major League Baseball. Because he's, inc-
0: he's got incredible movement on all of his pitches. Like, is just – he's a stud. So I'm going to ask you this question. Out of the young stars in baseball, whether it's Vladimir Guerrero, Ronald Acuna, uh, Garcia obviously is heating up, uh, Castellanos, Fernando Tati, Shohei Otani, Juan Soto – who is the guy that you have the first pick, right, out of the young guys? We'll leave Trout out of this because I still think Trout's the best player in baseball. But leaving oh, Trout out of, out of this, who is the guy that you would be starting your franchise with right now?
1: I got to go Acuna. Acuna has all the weapons. Um, he really does. He does it on the base paths. He led, uh, he led the league in steals last year. Um, he, he hits bombs. Uh, but he also goes gap to gap. He's good at recognizing when he's in a in, in that two spot um, behind Albies. He can move Albies over and 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 get him to score. Um, and of course, the the glove is is unmatched in center field, except maybe by uh, by Trout <laughs> or uh, or Kiermaier, maybe. Uh, but man, yeah, I, I got to go with uh, with Acuna Jr. There.
0: He it's hard not to say him. Oh, wait, Scotty, we have breaking news. We have oh, yeah? breaking news. The James Madison University softball team just upset the number one team in the country, Oklahoma, in the Let's Women's go. College World Series. What do you say, Dukes? Are you kidding me?
1: How about them, Dukes?
0: First time. How about First that? time in the Women's College World Series. They play powerhouse Oklahoma, and they knocked them off because of an extra innings home run in the top of the eighth. Are you kidding me, Scott?
1: You love to see it. Are you? You love to see it. That women's me? that women's tournament has been exciting. I mean, just just excited. I was so stoked. I meant to text you about the, about James Madison winning the uh, winning their uh, their conference and getting to the or winning the regional rather and getting to the College World Series. That's that's awesome, man. I'm so glad they won. I, that's I, I, that's I, really. I've, fun.
0: I've had the game streaming while we've been on Zoom, just so I can <laughs> kind of keep an eye on it. And I got a text. Not to name drop here, but national uh, Col- a national sports writer of the year winner Nicole Auerbach, texted me to ch- say, "Hey, how about your Dukes right now?" My phone's blown up with people because everyone who works on our channel at SiriusXM knows that I am a I'm a JMU alum, knows that I'm, I'm a diehard JMU fan. So I just get associated because we're a mid major. Um, but holy shit, dude! Wow. Jay just knocked off. That would be like if Houston or Cincinnati gets into, you know, the college football playoff, like an expanded eight team and then knocks off Alabama, you know, like that is how insane this is. And that's how good Oklahoma is. In fact, (laughs) one of my really good friends who I work with, his name is Chris Plank. He is the official voice of Oklahoma softball. He does all of their home games. He does all of their their TV and radio coverage. So I got to shoot my man Plank a text there because that is incredible. Sorry for the detour there, but that is, wow. I don't know. Maybe I need to add the fight song in here, right? Madison, James Madison, we are the Dukes of JMU. There we go. What do you say? Um, Uh, Who came up with that? Was it James Madison? (laughs) You know what's funny about James Madison? There's a statue of him that's like life-sized uh, on on campus and was right right next to my dorm. Growing up, he was the short. I think he was the shortest president we ever had. He was like sounds right. He was like four foot six or like four foot seven. He he's a tiny. He was a tiny tiny guy. There may or may not be pictures of me uh, shotgunning a beer next to that uh, <laughs> next to that statue. But on college
1: game day, was there or what?
0: Oh no, that was just like a casual Friday night when I was a freshman. Right. In college. <laughs> <It's> a Tuesday, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> jmu that's just yeah That's just your average tuesday um back to the conversation we were having if i'm starting a franchise right now and i can have any of the young guys i still think i'm going to take tatis and Vladdy and, and acuna and and look i think we we don't talk about juan soto enough because he, he's been hurt this year yeah, man. he's been banged up but i mean the dude was the best player on a world series team at 19 years old all right so and Talk about a guy who can, he hits better power than Acuna does. He hits probably not as good from contact, but he's as good of a fielder as Acuna. Um, I think he's a better athlete overall. So between Acuna or Juan Soto, I would actually lean more towards Juan Soto just because we've seen him do it in the clutch, right? Ronald Acuna in the run that we saw last year from the Braves was just kind of okay in the playoffs, you know, And, and look, some of that can be streaky, but, baseball timely hitting is what wins you championships in baseball so I I like Ronald Acuna and he's still so young that like he could absolutely have a run where they go there but Atlanta's been just so disappointing this year based off of their roster and how people thought they were going to be going into the season Fernando Tatis to me is just a monster in, in every facet of the game I don't know did you see the highlight of him getting out of the way of that pitch yeah. Where where he turned into Gumby for a second yeah. where his leg just flailed. I didn't think legs could bend that way without rupturing every tendon in your knee. Oh,
1: I would. If I if I tried that I would tear every tendon ligament and and break every bone attached to my knee, leg and foot. So that was that it was funny to see, man. I didn't know that he he could shape a human body in that manner. Yeah. That was great.
0: And he's so good defensively. You know, think about this, right? Yeah. It's almost like the the only other example of this I can think of in recent history, at least, where you have an all-star caliber shortstop and and arguably one of the best defensive players in all of baseball, but shortstops and Manny Machado moved to third base. You know, Machado wanted to play shortstop for the Padres, even though he played third base for for the Orioles for a long time. He wanted to play shortstop, and that was going to be the move for them. But they knew they had Tatis in, in the in the waiting. And they were like, no, we're going to keep you at third. And the only other example that I can remember was when Arod went to the Yankees. You know, A-Rod had to become a third baseman. A-Rod was one of the best defensive shortstops in baseball, but he was going to be playing with Derek Jeter. So he had to move to third base. Now, it's a little bit different because Machado played third base throughout most of his career with the Orioles, but he signed with San Diego because he wanted to be a shortstop. But they just knew the talent that they had – in fernando tatis and i think everything that fernando tatis is as talented as any of these other young stars that we've been talking about but he also has the star factor you know he also has the guys will want to you people will want to pay to go watch that dude play he's got the the bat flipping he's just he's kind of like a modern ken griffey ken griffey jr You know, he's got that same kind of swagger to him. That's just like, this dude just radiates cool. And as impressive as all these other players are, and I and again, I love Vladdy. I think Vladimir Guerrero Jr. is going to be in the league for a long, long time as one of the premier superstars. But if I'm starting a franchise right now where you want a guy who can do that classic, you know, cliche five-tool player, Fernando Tatis Jr. is that guy right now who also adds the sixth tool, in my opinion, which is... Will he sell tickets? Because that's the only thing missing from Mike Trout. You know, Mike Mike Trout is wonder bread, dude. <laughs> like, my, and, and I I love watching him play because I played baseball. It's a, it's a sport that I admire and, and I admire. And he's also a Philly guy, so I, I just naturally have an affinity for Mike Trout. But he's I, for as great as he is, he's not someone who's gonna sell tickets from a marketing standpoint. He lets his game sell the tickets. Fernando Tatsis Jr. can sell the tickets with his game as well as sell the tickets as a marketable superstar
1: yeah it's like almost basketball-esque how uh, how tatis runs his his market like in his branding so yeah uh, it's cool to see it's a it's a nice switch from from sort of the stodgy old uh put your head down uh flip your cap up and and go about your business and go do work on a baseball yeah. field, which is how you and I grew up playing. It's no like question. shut your mouth and let your bat and your glove do the talking. Right.
0: And baseball has um, been so, so nice much change. You know, yeah, baseball has exactly. been so behind on, on letting their players be themselves, you know, and, and using their individual personalities as a marketing tool to to help grow and expand the game. That's why baseball has been leapt over by basketball, by the NHL playoffs, you know, by by a lot of different sports, even soccer in this country, you know, especially with Pulisic winning the the with winning with Chelsea, but uh, winning the Champions League this past weekend. I mean, soccer gr- is more popular in America than it's ever been before. Um, switching to the mound here for a second is how far is the gap between DeGrom and everybody else?
1: Oh, it's huge. It's massive, it's huge. right?
0: It's unbelievable. Yeah. He, he yeah. is the most dominant pitcher that I've seen in, cause this isn't like a one year spurt. Like we've seen pitchers have individual years that have rivaled what DeGrom has been doing, but this is what the third year in a row that DeGrom has been unbelievable and yet the mets yeah. who are in first place largely because of him um, you know the, the mets have been disappointing right? like the Certainly francisco their L- offense <laughs> the francisco lindor signing has been tragic oh, it, it's it, it's been awful for them yeah so i mean just I, abysmal so is there the first- who who who's next in that tier and how far is that up? is it glass now is it garrett cole i mean garrett cole's had a pretty good year i mean
1: glass now garrett cole's there uh trevor Bauer's probably there and walker bueller both on the same team in la um and
0: clayton kershaw's think, having a really good year
1: i think through the first two months and i hate to be a homer but for the through the first two months you got to look at a guy like kevin gossman in, in san francisco he's putting up those uh dominant numbers as well Is he's, he's sub two era um and and just absolutely lights out every time he's taken the mound. But but I yeah Glass now um, and Shohei Otani honestly yeah. is is the only other pitcher that I can think of that's even close. Um, and Brandon Woodruff has has had a nice month too in May. I
0: was uh, just I, those, I was just going to uh, say that he's he's been lights <laughs> out late, uh, especially this yeah. year. Shane Bieber leading the league in strikeouts. He got 117. Yeah. Glass now is second with 106. Uh, and then you got Garrett Cole, Trevor Bowers had a, a sneaky good year. If you look at the individual starts that he's had uh, right yeah. now, Trevor, Trevor Bauer leads the league in quality starts. But if you look at the individual, like games specifically, he's kind of gotten screwed over by his offense on, on, on a few different occasions. He's had a couple of moments that have been bad, letting up untimely home runs, but Trevor Bowers had a really good year now after leaving Cincinnati and kind of recreating his career. Um, but I, I would think Shane Bieber, garrett cole those are the guys who are kind of right after him and then yeah kevin gossman i mean and pick
1: it and pick anyone too on the oh, sorry go ahead you were talking about gossman
0: well i was just gonna say it's just you know <laughs> talk about a guy who's been around for a while who's who's had a pretty up and down career putting together the best year of his career so far jeff
1: he's only 30 he's been that's around crazy. the block and he's only 30
0: that's crazy that's nuts, right um, i mean he because he and was then in yeah i mean baltimore right like he's been all over the place
1: all over Cincinnati, yeah a bunch of different spots. Um, and then, uh, I, I guess uh, the only other group I throw out is pick your poison on that Chicago White Sox pitching staff. Um, yeah, because that is top to bottom the best one I've seen all year. Rodon. Um,
0: yeah, they um, don't have anyone at the top. Like they don't have G-O-Bito. any. Yeah, yeah, they don't have any like top level guys. But what they have done a really good job of is just the depth. There's so much yeah. depth. In that you know, in that rotation in Chicago, I love the White Sox. I I, I tell you what, and um, that's a perfect transition to kind of the one of the last things I want to talk about here before we get to the NBA stuff to end the show is the Chicago White Sox are as young, they're fun. You have Mercedes out there who's been balling out late in his career, and they got. Did you see the the new uniforms that they that they got too? I think that's south oh, side yeah, on he- them. Yes. Yeah. yeah.
1: There, so that there are nine teams that are doing that this year. The Giants are one of them, I think. Um, the Red Sox did it for the Boston Marathon, I think. There's it's mm. like a new collection of jerseys. They're trying to switch it around to be
0: like the, the NBA, like City Dude, Edition type those, thing. Right? Those uniforms for the White Sox might be the coolest they, uh, baseball uniforms I've ever seen. They are sick. They have like this old school, like almost like uh mafia gangster kind of look, you know, like with the pinstripes on them. I love the font that they use and it's just a South side on it. Like I, I think that I think they look freaking sick. Um, and, and I really want to be a big white Sox fan, but there's a giant old 80 year old alcoholic old school fucking stain right on top of it that I just can't get behind in Tony Larusa.
1: Um, I'm a Hall of Famer.
0: Yeah. Right. I'm a, I'm a Hall of Famer. Like, <laughs> that like it's so unfortunate that we have what is easily the most likable team in the majors being managed by easily the most unlikable manager in all of baseball. How long does he stay? This has to be his only year and how have the White Sox not fired him after everything that's come out since they hired him?
1: Um, you know what he kind of reminds me of? Have you ever seen uh, of course, probably a league of their own uh, yeah. where Jimmy Dugan, like the first couple games he manages and he's like pissing in the corner in the dugout. That's what Tony La Russa reminds me of.
0: That's because Tony and, La like, was like 45 like, during that time. Like he was, he lived during <laughs> that era, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it seems sort of like, um, a little bit, um, uh, like he's just the, uh, the, the face of, of the managerial sphere and someone's actually, you know, behind the scenes running the, running the show. Um, because there's no way I don't I don't see how this team, as young and talented as it is, uh, and even even for as, as, as accomplished as LaRusso has been in his career, how this White Sox team can look at him and go, "Yeah, okay, we'll play for you."
0: Yeah, I don't understand it. So I, that's my theory. You know what I think? I think they're playing for each other. I think yeah. there's I, I don't think there's any respect for him. I, I really don't. I I think they're so. Over it, I think they're so over him and and his bullshit. I mean, we're talking about a team that is plus seventy nine in run differentials. I mean, especially in the home field advantage, they're twenty and nine at league. home. I mean, yeah. the best home record in baseball. They're they're just they're so much fun. And, and whether it's Tim Anderson or Jose breu or Mercedes, like they just have so many guys who you look at and you're like, this team is awesome. And yet. You see that they show to his freaking terribly Coach K-esque dyed hair. And, and you just got like, w- there's such a disconnect between players and manager. I mean, what was your take on the 3-0 home run that Mercedes hit? Oh, a couple weeks I ago? loved it. Yeah, I can't stand that. That See, we talked about this, this
1: stodgy old uh, guard philosophy. Oh, Can't swing a bat on a 3-0 home run when you're up 10 right. Shut up. Be a better pitcher. That's the one th- for as much as I can't stand Trevor Bauer running his mouth. That's the one thing he said this year that I I actually appreciated. I'm like, yes, be a better pitcher. Yes. that's that's all there is to it.
0: I don't if you care how up a home far run. Away. Yeah, if you let up a home run, you deserve to get exactly smack. If you go up three zero on account and can't find the strike zone in your first three pitches, and a guy wants to swing on a fastball right down the middle, you're in the major leagues, bud. Every Come on. single player should do that. And the fact that Tony DeRosa – Tony LaRusso came out and condemned his own player for swinging 3 yeah. 0 when he, when LaRusso didn't get the take sign in on time. If you're a player, you played the game, I played the game. It's, it's something you're taught since you're 12 years old. If you get a 3 0 count, you look to the third base coach. If he gives you the green light, you're swinging. You're swinging and you're not thinking twice about it. So I, th- yeah. this whole idea that like, he shouldn't have swung. And also you're the manager. You're supposed to have your players back. Even that's why guys get thrown out of games. It's why doc rivers yeah. came out when they were doing the hack of Ben Simmons in the, the wizard sixer series a couple nights ago and said, you know, if Ben splits his free throws one for two, which he did when they were doing that, that's still a point per possession which is analytically speaking great, which like, are there holes in that in that logic? Are there holes in that argument? No question. But he was doing it because he wanted to stand up for his guy. And as a coach, as a manager, that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to defend your guys above anybody else. Yeah. The fact that Larusa would openly, would basically take the old school style of baseball and the the old way, the good old days, and value that more than supporting his own player. And if you really had an issue with it, keep it in house why are you saying anything to the fucking media yeah
1: and if you do say anything back up your player and then pull him aside in the in the clubhouse where nobody's looking and be like hey the thing is here's what i really think about it let's let's have a discussion yeah not uh not publicly displaying your your disdain for for the move that he made and it could just
0: it could have been handled so simply right they ask him post game hey uh mercedes swung on a 3-0 pitch and hit that home run what do you think about it he goes oh well i had a conversation with mercedes about it and uh and that's all we really need to talk about boom that's that's done you don't have to you don't have to say like and it just feels like such a like old white man trying to make sure that his opinion gets put across when it's like dude know when to shut up like know when to not talk right because I'm telling you right now, guys hitting bombs on 3-0 counts is better for baseball than following the rule, you know, following the the unwritten rules of baseball. That shit drives me up a wall. Another boring walk. Here we go. (laughs) And that's why I love Tatis so much, you know, And, and that's why Griffey was so important. The fact that it was controversial that Ken Griffey Jr. liked to wear a base a backward baseball hat when he was warming up and when he'd be in the dugout is an absurdly antiquated you know, expectation that we put on baseball players. And when he did that, it helped usher in a new era, like, era of the game. And I think what we see with Tatis is another player. And what we've seen from the White Sox and their whole roster is that they're, this is the beginning of the next era of baseball players, where the unwritten rules are going away. The let the kids play narrative is actually starting to become a part of baseball culture and having a dinosaur like Tony La Russa managing one of the most fun teams in baseball I just think is such a it just sucks it's just it's such a terrible like mat ex- ex- partnership it just shouldn't exist it's it's gonna suck more
1: if they do in the world series and the narrative becomes well Tony La Russa's team just won the world series you know yes um and that's that's such a discredit to the sport and to the to the people
0: that actually accomplished that goal of winning a world series i completely Um, agree completely agree um all right before we move on from baseball and take another quick break looking at the standings right now in the teams that are in first who do you see as the safest bets that like you know all right tampa bay is playing maybe a little bit above what we thought they were going to be playing especially after the way that they started right uh boston's overachieved chicago has been one of the best and cleveland has overachieved um, which of these teams are we most likely to see come the end of the season, the last two thirds of the season that you think will still realistically be in the driver's seat of their division?
1: I think the Cubs, if they can stay healthy, honestly, um, mm. uh, that division is not as as good as we thought it was going to be. I don't, I don't see the Mets holding on to, to that lead Philly and Atlanta are too good. Uh, apparently anything can happen at the, the top of that NL West, which is competitive. I think when the chips settle, Tampa Bay is the best team in that division. Uh, yeah, I go I, either of the Tampa two Bay? teams in Chicago
0: in the NL West. Yeah,
1: no, in the AL East.
0: I mean, oh, you uh, said NL West. <laughs> yeah, I was like, wait, sorry. what? Uh, no, no, you're good. You're good. Guy, Just make sure i didn't No.
1: Them. Yeah, I think uh, I think either of those two teams in the in Chicago realistically have the best shot of uh, of coming out uh, sitting where
0: they are right now unbiased uh, who do you see winning the NL East and who do you see winning the NL West? Because the NL, NL East, East has, has been disappointing. I think based off of the expectations going into the season for that, for that. And look, they're still technically the most competitive division in baseball. The gap between first and fifth is the smallest in that division out of any of the divisions in baseball. And it's not particularly close. It's only six game yeah, difference between the second and, and the, the Mets.
1: Second and third are under 500 right now. And I know it's early, but that's like, that's not com- more competitive to me is three teams in the NL West sitting above 30 wins.
0: Well, and the Mets have missed a lot of games. The Mets have significantly less games played than pretty much every other team uh, in-, in baseball, but especially in the NL East. Um, I so think who that's do you-
1: helping them more than hurting them. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: I really think at the end of the day,
1: um, I'm going to, I'm going to stick with Philly. I think their pitching's too good. I think it's a little better than Atlanta. Um, Atlanta's got the pop though. Uh, no, I'm going to, I'm going to stick with my guns. I'm going to go for Philly. I think uh, that the, the pitching will take them, take them down the stretch.
0: The pitching has been great for the Phillies. Zach Wheeler, um, second year in a row where Zach, I mean, talk about a phenomenal signing, man. No drafted Zach Wheeler. Oh, what in fantasy or just, no, it, it, no and, did the
1: giants, the giants drafted him, traded him to the Mets for, yeah uh, for angel Pagan in 2000, uh, 2011. I want to say,
0: well, that led to a world series win, So. I'm sure I'm okay, sure you'll I'm okay. sure you'll I'm sure you'll take the World Series win for 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 Zach Wheeler. Um, yeah, you know, I'm kind of with you. I got to remember, too, the Phillies have been on a bit of a downslope recently. Um, Alec Boehm's having a sophomore slump and they've lost a bunch of these games recently because Dwight How. Ha- ha- Jesus Christ, Bryce Harper. I don't know where Howard sport. came out from. <laughs> Jesus Christ! Um, because Bryce Harper has been out of the lineup, uh, and, and there have been moments this year where Bryce Harper has looked like a potential MVP candidate. He's had a, he's statistically had a phenomenal season. He's just missed the last week and a half or so, and uh, when he gets back from the DL, I think the Phillies have a chance to be one of the best teams uh, in the NL East. I still like the Braves roster. I just feel like they're figuring shit out. Like I, I, I can't really put my finger on why the Braves have been as disappointing as they have been, but they, they have. And whether it's a Cunha junior kind of driving them home and eventually the rest of the team kicks up. I, I think the Braves still have a, a real chance to win this division. I just don't trust the Mets. You know, I think Lindor is due for a hot streak. You know, for a guy that they went out and traded for, gave up a bunch of assets for, and also are paying a lot of money. Um, yeah. Lindor has been, I mean, defensively, he's still been great. And he's always been an incredible defensive player, but Lindor has definitely been a disappointment on the offensive end. Um, in the NL West, take your Giants hat off. And uh, who wins that division as it stands right now?
1: I will. I think. I think the Dodgers at the end of the day win the division. Interesting. Um, The pool hall signing has worked out pretty well for him. It has. He's been rejuvenated, it looks like. Um, Way to take one of my my favorite players growing up and and make me have a reason to despise him. Thanks a lot. Only LA would do When
0: Chase Utley went to the Dodgers, I was still rooting for him. I wasn't.
1: Um, In any case, I think at the end of the day, they've been banged up. Uh, Cody Bellinger just came back. Uh, in the middle of the month, uh, Mookie Betts has been in and out of the lineup uh, a couple times in May. Uh, Corey Seager's out for for quite a bit; he he, he broke his hand. Um, but their pitching staff has just been I, look at it, like how do you lose three out of five games when you got Bueller, Trevor Bauer, and Clayton Kershaw the way he's pitching this year yeah. going out there? Although the Giants put up a, a four spot on Clayton Kershaw, just saying. Um, no, I think at the end of the day, the uh, the Dodgers have the best team top to bottom i think the podgers are close second i think honest honestly I, I think when it's all said and done the giants are the one of those three teams that miss out on the uh, on the playoff spot
0: yeah i mean they could still sneak in um you know if the Giants. because remember too all they would have to do as a wild card is you know beat the phillies braves or cardinals you know i guess milwaukee's still kind of in that mix as well um but, but right now, I, I think there's a really good chance the Giants we, we could see two wild card teams coming from the NL West. Yeah, I, I'm going with the yeah. Dodge or with the Padres. Okay, I that's think not a bad pick. Yeah. My I,
1: only I, trepidation with the Padres is that their starting staff hasn't been as great as, as it should be. Yeah. Uh, with you, Darvish, Blake Snell, and, and Musgrove. Musgrove is really carrying the load there. So that's my only trepidation. But
0: yeah. But I trust, I trust you, Darvish, and I trust Blake Snell. And if you have all three of those guys, Musgraves, Darvish, and Blake Snell all rolling come playoff time, that's as good as what yeah. the Dodgers have at the top of their rotation.
1: Yeah. Oh, no, I agree. You know, with that and, offense. And yeah.
0: I still think that, and I think the Padres have, have a, another move to make, you know, I, I think in a lot of ways, the Dodgers going out and getting pool holes, I think they made a move almost a little too early, which I like bringing him in and the presence he's going to have. But I mean, it's not like it's a team. I honestly would have loved to have seen pool holes go to the Padres, you know, cause I think there needs a, that's the one thing that the Padres are missing. Are is like a really solid veteran, experienced presence in that locker room, you know. And they do have Eric Hosmer, who uh, obviously won World Series with the Kansas City Royals. But that all, like you said, that offense in San Diego, I think, is as good, if not better, than the Dodgers. And the Dodgers have had a lot of injuries, and yet they're still only a game and a half out of first place and have thirty-three wins. And we were talking about this off air, but the number one, number two, and number three win totals in all of the NL belong to the top three teams, in the NL West. No other team uh, has, has 33 or more wins and the giants Padres and Dodgers all have 33, 34 and 34. So it'll be, it'll be really interesting to see how that plays out. But I I think the Padres might sneak around and do it. I just think they can beat you in so many different ways with their bats. Um, They're just, I think they're again, I think they're a move away, maybe sure up the bullpen, which is always a, I mean, that's always the question, right? Who's going to land the star reliever who hits free, who hits the trade market come deadline time, because every team is just one or two arms in their bullpen away from making a run. So if the Padres are the team that are willing to go out and make the moves to go out and get them, then I I like San Diego uh, to to win that division. All right. Um, Quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk. M, uh, NBA playoffs, which I know I did a bunch of on, on Wednesday. So we're going to do less recapping of the games like the Wednesday pod was. And this is going to be more um, just talking about some of the storylines and some of the individual players as, as Scotty's tapping his wrist. Tapping his dame wrist. Time. That's all the tease you need. We'll be right back here in uh, just a sec. Scotty, you know what time it is. It's dame time, baby. It is Damian. dame. Dalla. It is dame <laughs> time. And I think you and I both feel the same way about Damian Lillard, which is that this guy is just so ridiculously underappreciated for how incredible he's been. Uh, That game the other night, double overtime where they lost to the Nuggets, I talked about it on uh, Wednesday's pod. Dude, he went 17 of 24 from the field, going 12 of 17 from three.
1: 12 three-pointers beats Klay Thompson's 11 in the playoffs, that playoff record. Set
0: a record for most three-pointers made in a postseason. 55 points, 10 assists, 6 rebounds. Again, 17 of 24. He only missed eight – not even – he only missed seven shots this entire game. Um, but the thing about Dame that I love, and again, I alluded to this on Wednesday, is he is a unique breed of superstar in the NBA. Because your, your average NBA superstar, which is kind of an oxymoron to say, but your average NBA superstar does not stay in a small market for a long time. Does not have this chip yeah. on their shoulder to, to try to knock off the best in the world and do it borderline by himself. I mean, yeah. how, I, when you think of Damian Lillard, He's he's a he's kind of a one of one in my eyes and not in that we haven't seen players who are more talented, but it's everything with his personal his personality his makeup and the fact that he's, you know, if he had been on those Golden State Warriors teams, you know, would we be talking about him the way we talk about Steph, you know, if you flip Steph and Dame, is there much of a difference. Now I think Steph is a better shooter. Uh, Yeah. But what we've seen from Dame is that Dame is, I think, arguably one of the top five shot makers we've ever seen in the NBA, because every single year he proves it. And I don't know if it's just the chip on his shoulder coming from Weber State and now playing in a small market Oakland. like Portland. You know, he comes from Oakland. Like there, there's just something about Damian Lillard that is uniquely special. And I want your, your reactions to it, what, what you think of when you think of Dame time.
1: Uh, I, when I think of daytime, it's just clutch, clutch performances. I mean, he, he does it all the time. It, it, there are very few players in the NBA and he's probably honestly, if I sat down and wrote it, it was at the top of the list of guys who I want the ball in their hands in a close game with 10 seconds left on the clock. I, it's a very short list. I mean, like KD might be on there.
0: I'll do you um, one better. I think he is the, the number one player in the NBA. I,
1: I, I wouldn't even argue that. I, need- I, I really th-
0: you got a gun to your they, head and you can pick one person to drain a three pointer yeah, then I'll with go your Dame. life on the line. Who are you Dame. picking? I, I would pick Damian Lillard. Damian Lillard. Yeah. I think Steph no, would no, be right no behind him, but Steph's Steph historically does not really have the game winners. You know, he's got a, and I said this yesterday, he, we need like a clutch gene study and he needs to be the apex of it. And I want, and it sucks because if he was playing for the Knicks, Right. A bad organization like Portland and Portland's not a bad organization, um, but they just they can't bring in superstars. Right. So you think of these like a Charlotte, right, who are like kind of mediocre organizations don't play in a big market. If he was on a mediocre team or organization, but in a big market like the Knicks, like the Nets before Katie and Kyrie went there, he could have lured other superstars to kind of come join him. But he's never leaving. I mean, and we've seen some awesome things from CJ McCollum over the years, you know, like that game where he had, I think it was like 50 halfway through the third quarter and then they pulled him and he was like on his oh, way yeah. to potentially matching, you know, maybe not matching, but at least getting in that 70 plus point range and they pulled him. Like we've seen CJ McCollum have incredible games, but with his injury history over the last couple of years, it's been a while since we've seen that version of CJ McCollum and outside of CJ, It's Yusuf Nurkic who, especially in this game. I mean, if you look at the game was a game five on Tuesday night where the Nuggets end up beating the trailblazers. Everybody played like 40 plus minutes in the starting lineup. Robert Covington played 44. Norman Powell plays 51. Dane played 52 and CJ McCollum played 51 minutes. Yusuf Nurkic only played 24 because he fouled out at midway through the fourth quarter. So, actually, I think it was even earlier than that. And the problem with that is that when you're matched up against Jokic, you kind of have to use all of your fouls. But if Enos Kanter is your backup center, when Carmelo Anthony was guarding the MVP of the league, I mean, even when Carmelo was in his prime, he wasn't a good defender. So the failure to surround Damian Lillard with high-quality players is apparent. But I don't necessarily hold that against Portland, because NBA players don't want to go play in Portland. So how does this end for Damian Lillard? Does he get to a point where he decides he just he would rather win a championship? Or is he going to be a guy who will stay with Portland throughout his entire career and risk not winning a championship and therefore not being considered one of the greats as he probably should be by the time his career ends? Because talk about making... The most out of nothing, making the best of bad situations. I mean, Damian Lillard had this team in the Western Conference Finals two years ago. Yeah, yeah. I, I, to me, he seems like a guy that,
1: by by everything that he's he's said over over the years, because this has been a, an ongoing narrative, doesn't seem like a guy who's going to jet to chase the ring, um, and I would be surprised if he did. He also seems like the kind of guy who's like, even if, if they do end up getting a ring in Portland at some point, and I think if there's a year to do it, it might be this one. Um, if they do get a ring, it's going to be that much sweeter. Hmm. Um, so one ring will feel like 10, uh, to a guy like him. Right. So, and as a, as a singular player, you're right. You can't discount. He's a hall of famer. Like it's not even a question. He's first foul hall of famer. Um, it, but you're right the narrative around around uh greatest of all time status will be severely diminished if he doesn't have a ring Even, i don't care about that all that much but like honestly yeah he's, he's just so and he's not in the
0: goat court. conversation but just comp- use it i mean it's tough when you look at his contemporaries right like he's kind of the opposite of what chris paul was which is that both of them are incredible players that have been there's a lot of similarities, but there's differences in the way that they've gone about it, right? Which is that Damian Lillard could go the Chris Paul route, which was start out in New Orleans with the Pelicans, uh, not with the Pelicans, it was the Hornets then. Hornets, yeah. <laughs> uh, and then work your way to the Clippers and then spend a bunch of time with the Clippers. And then eventually after that, he goes to Houston. Then now he's been on three different teams in the last three years between Houston, OKC, and uh, now Phoenix for Phoenix. Chris Paul. So there's a perfect example of a player who was as talented, even though in a different way, you know, I think Dame's a better shooter, better shot maker, better um, just all around scorer than Chris Paul. But Chris Paul is the epitome of a floor general, right? He's, he's the guy who is going to dissect defenses and put the ball where it needs to be. So it's this weird kind of compare and contrast where it's like Chris Paul has been on five, six different teams and yet hasn't won a title, even though he's been on really, really good teams. And Damian Lillard can look at that and be like, all right, yeah, I can do what, what Chris Paul did and try to join other superstars in the league. But that's not necessarily going to guarantee that I win and is selling out now worth it comparatively. And for Dame, I think just his makeup, the guy he is, his loyalty. You talk about the Oakland, you know, a guy who was born and raised in Oakland. There's something in the water there in Oakland, right? You think of the Marshawn Lynches before. Marshawn Lynch's guy ran out onto the field to fight his own team to protect one of his really good friends and Marcus Peters from Oakland, because that's just how deep the Oakland ties kind of run. And there's a loyalty that exists there, which I think a lot of old school fans really appreciate comparatively to what we see out of a team like the Brooklyn nets, which were like the Brooklyn nets were terrible two years ago. And then, all right, you get Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, and now you trade for James Harden. And yeah, you're, you're the favorites to win the title now. Um, but I just I'm I'm so fascinated to see how the last the last act of Damian Lillard's career is going to go. I mean, how old? I, I asked this the other day. Do you know how old Dame Lillard is off the top of your head? I believe he and I are the same age, so I'm going to go thirty-two. Thirty-two.
1: Uh, he's thirty. No, we're not the same age. Turns he'll out
0: be, he'll be thirty-one in July. Um, I said twenty-nine on the podcast the other day, but yeah, so thirty years old for Dame. Um, Which I think is, it means that he's got another probably three or four years of his prime, and then he'll have a second act of his career. And does he end up, you know, going somewhere for the last part of his career to try to get a ring? That's, I could definitely see that happening. But I will forever have a ton of respect in an era where it's more and more guys choosing to leave and team up. You know, I had this theory, and I'd love to know your thoughts on it about the Nets. You know, there's been a whole discussion about, how much more interest there is from a fan base perspective when it comes to the Knicks versus the Nets. And you have the Nets who are an all-time talent team between KD, Kevin Durant, or KD, Kyrie, James Harden. You have Blake Griffin kind of playing a a smaller role, Joe Harris. Like there's a bunch of like really high quality, like incredible offensive players. And then also some other pretty big names that kind of back them up there. Even DeAndre Jordan still with the Brooklyn Nets. Um, Yeah. When I think about the Nets, though, it feels like the Nets aren't playing to win for a fan base. Because when you think about three players who could give less of a shit about fans, the first three names (laughs) you would think of are Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, and James Harden. They don't care about the fans. They care about themselves. They care about their team. And look, I get that, right? They have – there's this whole – narrative, and Kyrie is pushed back on fans – time after time after time Kevin Durant clearly doesn't give a shit about the fans because he talks crap to them on Twitter every second of every day and James Harden was willing to completely sell out all of Houston after everything that they did for him and embarrass himself in the way that he got himself out of Houston just to make himself happy and play with guys that he wanted to play with so it feels like you know talking about how the White Sox are playing for each other and not necessarily their manager it kind of feels like the Brooklyn Nets are doing the same thing, but that's because the Brooklyn Nets don't have a fan base. It's because no one gives a shit about the Brooklyn Nets. And so that title, if they do win, think about how embarrassing that championship parade is going to be. No one's going to give a shit if they, if they win. You know, just like the Clippers in LA. No one gives a shit if the Clippers win. No one's going to care. Outside of Lakers fans, who are just going to be butthurt about the entire deal. But no one's going to... Oh, no. go- if
1: you know LA fans, they're going to swap real easy, so don't worry.
0: No, not with the Lakers, dude. The Lakers fans... They hate the Clippers, but they think of the Clippers as like the annoying little stepbrother who they just never really got along with because they're still bitter about their parents' divorce. Like, you know, like that's <laughs> <laughs> like that. That's that, is, that is how the Lakers view the Clippers. Um, but I, I just, I, I, what do you make of the, of the Brooklyn Nets? Do you think that's fair? Like, do you think that's an accurate representation of? Yeah. I think you know, these guys just don't care about fans. They just don't. They want to win it for themselves and they don't care what anybody else thinks about it.
1: That's a great point, Jeff. I never really thought about it that way. Um, although it is hard for a guy like Kyrie to care about the fans when they're throwing water bottles at you post game, but
0: um, Which is despicable and and embarrassing, yeah. no question. <laughs>
1: um but but yeah, you're right. I mean, like look at look at some of these these super teams that that have been formed. Even K D on on to the to the Warriors in, in the last few years. That wasn't a team um that he went to because he was gonna be Uh, the guy and um, and and win a a championship for for himself and and his teammates that was he came to Golden State because we created this team Uh, we that bench those years was unbelievable we created this team to because of our, our, our fan base yeah and so when you come up and join that you can't expect to be the guy when we have Steph Curry, who we drafted and Draymond Green, who we drafted. And so uh, that's how that narrative ended. So it, it rightly makes sense that he'd now join a team um, or end up on a team rather where uh, he, the the success of, of the team is the success of the three guys that, that care about winning championships for them and themselves.
0: Yeah. I, I think Kevin Durant views, you know, like how girls will like get dumped by guys and then they'll be like, I'm just swearing off men. You know, like, they'll just be like, I all men are trash. Right. I think that's how Kevin Durant views fan bases. It's like he had this incredible relationship with the Oklahoma city fans. Remember when Katie was in OKC and he was like the most lovable superstar ever. And then he leaves and then he has a really bad like breakup with the Oklahoma city fans. And then he goes to golden state and he's thinking oh i'm going to be adored in golden state i'm going to be the guy he, like was. Said, right? he was right like, yeah he was absolutely adored but he was never going to be the guy there right and so then he goes to golden state and it's like dating a guy who's still in love with his ex-girlfriend because the fan base has just love steph curry more than they were ever going to love kevin durant and well, so there, then and the rest hits, of the team it was,
1: it was oh for sure it was a home game.
0: yeah for, that's for, what for, i mean for, he for was sure you're going to
1: be number one Ever, no matter how no, good
0: he was. No, no matter what he did, he was never, ever. He, w- he was number two after Steph Curry. I, th- I think people loved Kevin Durant in Golden State. I'm not saying that. But w- what I'm saying is just that, like, he viewed the fans not picking him as the guy as like, again, like if you're dating somebody and they're still in love with their ex, like, all right, well, it's like, yeah, I'm, I might be good for them. They might still like me and appreciate me and even love me. But I'm never gonna be that guy. I'm never, you know what I mean? I'm never gonna be that person that's still in the back of their brains when they, you know, when they fall asleep at night. There it's that person's always gonna be Steph Curry. So then he has both of those incidents between Oklahoma City breaking his heart and being nasty to him, and then not having what he thought it was gonna be in Golden State. And then he looks at Brooklyn and goes, I'm going where I want. Fuck it. This is about me. This this whole decision is about me and what I want and nothing else outside of that. And he took that mentality, and then the same thing happened. To Kyrie, where Kyrie was the little brother to LeBron. No matter what Kyrie did, he was never going to be LeBron James. Even though he was the guy who they drafted right after LeBron left and went to Miami, Kyrie was the savior. And then when LeBron comes back, it's like, oh, yeah, no, thanks, Kyrie. You're going to be number two now. We love LeBron more. Like he immediately got put there. And then he goes to Boston, has a bad experience there and kind of followed the same path to get there. And then you just add James Harden into the mix. And look, this team is unbelievably talented, like on another level when it comes to talent. Like I seriously do think this is the most talented big three that we've ever had in sports at least in basketball, like to think of those the three, top guys, three
1: scores in the league. I
0: mean, <laughs> it's all guys who could average 30 a game on their own. All guys who have aver- averaged 30 a game on their own. It's two MVPs. It's a guy who hit two guys who hit game winning shots in the NBA finals between Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. So it's such a weirdly tied together dynamic between the three of them. Um, and I think it's going to be really interesting when they play Milwaukee. Do you have an early beat on what you are expecting out of this Milwaukee and Brooklyn series? Cuz I think it's go- I think it's going to go 7 games. I think it's at I least going you- to go 6.
1: Yeah. Well, the defense is tighter uh, with Milwaukee than than it was in that series against Boston, that will be for sure. Um and Milwaukee just shut down a pretty good Miami Heat team. I mean, just absolutely decimated them on on every facet of the game
0: i think the um, heat were better than what milwaukee made them look like and i think it was more of a testament as to how good milwaukee was rather that's, than that's what i mean yeah, yeah and i agree i i completely agree with, with what you're saying but i think the narrative that i've heard the most after that series is that we overrated the heat because they were in the finals last year and i think I the Heat. the so. i don't think I, I think we might have overrated them a little bit but i think we need to give more credit to milwaukee being incredible Rather than uh, Miami not being as good as we thought they were,
1: yeah, no doubt. Um, it's going to be a tough assignment, though. To I'm, I'm, I mean, Giannis, as as we've seen, Giannis didn't. Um, he was he, he was he was really good, of course, in that series. But he can't be carrying the the, the whole team um, the whole way through the playoffs. There's just no yeah. way you're going to get burned out. It's, that's the reason that they've had these failures in early rounds.
0: Well, and um, he's not a guy that you can out, give so. the ball with with two minutes to go in a tight game, and that's why exactly. the addition of Drew Holiday is as important as it is. And you also Huge. have Chris Middleton, right? Both of those guys can make shots on their own. They can also create shots for others, and you can put Giannis in the dunker spot for the you know the bottom things. But for the first forty five minutes of the game, Giannis can dominate, and against a completely empty. Brooklyn lineup, a, a Brooklyn lineup that's going to have to play DeAndre Jordan. DeAndre Jordan, I don't think, played a minute in that opening series. And now you're going to have to rely on DeAndre Jordan to either cover, you know, Brooke Lopez and then put Kevin Durant on uh, on Giannis or have DeAndre Jordan covering Giannis. And neither one of those is good for the Nets. So the question is, is is the Bucks defense good enough to – Close the gap with how incredible the offense of the Brooklyn Nets is. Is that going to be better than the Brooklyn then the one hundred and forty the Nets are going to put up? <laughs> well, is that going to be better than what Milwaukee's offense can score against the depleted Brooklyn Nets defense? And if if Brooklyn can close that gap by playing good enough defense to limit the the Nets to that hundred and twenty range. I think Brooklyn can score one hundred and twenty-five points a game in this series easily. So with their eyes closed, <laughs> yeah, against that defense. So is their defense going to be? Is the Milwaukee Bucks defense going to be good enough to close the gap to make it competitive? And I think they will. I think it's going to be a seven-game series. Um, and that kind of leads me into what the next thing I want to talk about here as, as we're getting ready to wrap up the pod. Um, Luka Doncic and Trey Young will forever be tied at the hip because of their uh, because of the trade, right? Where the Hawks were the in draft position night trade. Mm -hmm. the Hawks were in position to draft Luka Doncic they traded out of the spot to get Trey Young and then Luka comes in immediately and has just been incredible for the Dallas Mavericks so when you look at these two guys I think both of them are in are in a position to advance to the conference finals um we saw Luka what he did last night and and I just want to share the stat with you here Scotty because it's one of the most insane playoff statistics that you'll ever hear um this is from Rob Perez on Twitter. Uh, in what might be one of the most absurd statistical individual playoff performances in a long time, Luka Doncic scored or assisted on 31 of Dallas's 37 total field goals. He scored or what? assisted on 31 of 37 field goals. That, da- that means there's only six plays in which Dallas scored six shots that went in throughout the entire game that Luca didn't score or assist on. And Luca finished with a ridiculous stat line, 42 points, 14 assists, eight rebounds against two of the best perimeter defenders that we've seen in the NBA over the last decade between Kawhi Leonard and Paul George, you know? So if Dallas goes home and can win now, interesting wrinkle, the away team has won every single game in this series. So if Dallas can win at home, advance to the second round, and they'll have a matchup with the Utah Jazz in the second round. Luca is so good that I would not put it against Luca to be able to upset the Jazz in the second round, and especially seeing how well the Memphis Grizzlies played Utah, which after Game One, every single game was all uh, was was all Utah, like every single one of them, no question, but the big man for Dallas will be Luca, or sorry, will be Kristaps Przingis, who's going to be able to help stretch the floor a little bit, which means you're going to have to bring Rudy Gobert out of the paint in order to guard him. And then if you don't want to do that, you can throw in Boban for, you know, 15 minutes here and there and put in a seven foot five center who can actually be bigger and longer and, and play up well against Rudy Gobert. So I think there's a legitimate chance the Mavericks get there, And in the East, you look at the other side of that trade with Trey Young, who has played one of the best series that I've seen a player play, especially in their first playoff series. And Scott, you threw this this stat out earlier about Luca or about Trey Young. Trey Young is one of only two players in NBA playoff history to score 30 points in Madison Square Garden three three times, right? Yep. And who is the other one? Michael Jordan. Michael Jeffrey Jordan. No question. Right. So Trey Young has been playing out of his mind and playing incredibly efficiently while also being uh, a shot creator for other people. You know, he's creating opportunities for his teammates. If Philly doesn't have Joel Embiid and I tweeted this out last night, I said, if Philly, yeah. Philly without Joel Embiid, they're like a seven seed. You know, they're a playoff team, but they're like a seven. And They seed. looked it. Yeah. Now the second half last night against the Wizards, as the as the Sixers closed out Washington, they played great. I mean, you still have Tobias Harris, you still have Ben Simmons, but it took thirty points from from uh, Seth Curry. Seth Curry had to drop thirty, and Ben Simmons had a triple double. And they actually, in fun little side story, they were playing Call of Duty, one of the Call of Duty games, uh, before their like pregame nap earlier in the day. Uh, Seth and, and Ben Simmons, and <laughs> Ben told Seth. I need you to get 30 tonight for us to win. And Seth said, well, then you got to get a triple double. And both ended up happening. So I don't know. Maybe they just need to play call of duty before all these games, but without Embiid, they are a seven, six or seven seed. They just are. And so if they're going up against an Atlanta Hawks team, that's playing as well as they are Sands Joel Embiid, and they're going to have to play the small ball lineup where Ben Simmons is playing center. The yeah. Sixers, the <laughs> oh, Sixers could be in some trouble. Now, again, Ben Simmons is 6'10. So it's not like, you know, Draymond being a small ball, you know, center at 6'8 is is even a little more shocking, especially given Ben Simmons, you know, like size and athleticism. But I think there's a legitimate chance that both Luka and Trey Young, in their first real taste of the playoffs, because I don't necessarily count last year with the bubble as quote unquote real playoffs, um, though, you know, Dallas played incredibly well and almost beat the Clippers in the first round last year. Uh, I, I think there's a real chance that we see Luca and Trey Young both in the conference finals, and I would say this: I would put a bet down right now that at least one of the two makes it to the co- to the conference championship, conference finals in in either division.
1: I like that play. I really do. I mean, look, your your point about about Simmons playing center. Yeah, he's big and long and athletic, but you're going to have him play down low against Clint Capella. Like, the only way you beat him is on the perimeter. And we know Ben Simmons can't shoot the three or the 15. So, like...
0: You can get him off the that, dribble. But, yeah, that's, that's about it. That's
1: the only way. That's going to be a tough matchup. if in you're The dribble you're and, and in transition.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, I think the Sixers I, defensively will create a lot of problems for Trey Young, even without Embiid. Whether it's Danny Green, oh, yeah, Bible. Yeah. I think there's Fiebel, a world yeah. where they they say, hey, you know what? We're going to put Tobias Harris on uh, clint capella or we're going to start dwight howard and dwight howard will will match up against uh, capella and we're going to put ben simmons on trey young i think that is very realistic Uh, and i still think the Sixers have more talent but between bogdanovich between trey young deandre hunter's been playing really really well the hawks are a scary team if the sixers have Embiid, i think it's five games i think the sixers nap their way to uh, the eastern conference finals but and Bede has a partially torn right meniscus. I mean, that, that's not just something you just wake up from, and then all of a sudden you're, you're, you're back to normal, you know? So it'll be interesting to see. Um, I have one last thing, and then I'll open the floor up to you. LeBron's theatrics the other night in the Phoenix and L.A. game. Five minutes left, and I went on a rant about this on Wednesday, so I'm just going to open the floor up to you and let you give your thoughts. LeBron leaving the floor with five minutes left in the game in a game where they're getting blown out. How ridiculous is that? And why is he not getting more shit? Is it just because it's, oh, it's LeBron? Like, can you imagine? I I brought up that, you know, in the last dance, there was a whole like 20 minutes about this in the last dance when the Detroit Pistons walked off the court when they lost to the Chicago Bulls and Michael Jordan. And that was in the closing seconds of the game. There were five minutes left. How can you be a, 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 a leader and do that? Or even more importantly, and I said this the other day, if Kyle Kuzma had done that, LeBron would have lost his fucking mind. Mm-hmm. So give me, I've, the floor is yours, Scotty. G- give me your, I want all the old man yelling at cloud takes you got right now. Because it, <laughs> like th- it feels like that's how I was when I was doing that. But I think it's just rational at this point. I think it's just a rational criticism of LeBron.
1: Look, I for, for starters, it doesn't make sense to me from a sportsmanship perspective, especially at the highest level of your sport. Mm. And then to be the highest at the highest level of your sport, um, it just unacceptable. I unbelievable. Here's a guy who, too, uh, by the way, is is playing a game against the Warriors in the regular season, and and or in the uh, it was the playoffs. It was in the play in, and he goes down like he got shot by a a, a, a twenty two. From about five feet away, and and uh, and just absolutely, oh, he does this shit all the time. This is why the narrative around LeBron is: you'll never be the greatest. You'll never be the great. Michael Jordan wouldn't do this shit. Bill Bill. Uh, Russell wouldn't have done yeah. this shit. None, none of the, none of the greats would have done this to crowd. Kareem wouldn't have done it. Uh, whatever. I don't Magic, care. Magic, Larry bird. None no, of those Magic. guys would have done this. I don't care who you think you are. I don't care what team you think you play for. I don't care how bad you think you played that night. I don't give a goddamn how much you're down by. You do not leave your team hanging when you are supposedly the best player in the game of basketball right now. Player, and I'm not talking about on the court. Okay, that best player. If you're going to call someone the greatest of all time, I'm I'm talking about uh, the way that they carry themselves mm. on the floor, um, the way that they they lead their team. Okay, that that all kind of goes into it for me. Uh, so to to act that way, to act that childish, uh, the track record's not great, and it hasn't been. And this is why. There's there's this narrative about he'll never be the greatest of all time because look at the crappy pulls. yeah like this and then we get away it's, with it because
0: we're we're in a huge market in L A and it's LeBron and who cares it's the goat versus boat thing I say all the time right because yeah. LeBron is the best in my opinion LeBron is the best basketball the floor, player of all time on yeah. the floor unmatched but unmatched the goat the goat the greatest of all time is not just what you are as a basketball player it's everything about your legacy it's about the way that you carry yourself it's about how many championships you win like that's where the goat conversation and the boat are different right like you can be the most talented player of all time and lebron in my opinion and statistically it's almost inarguable to say that anybody else has had a better statistical career than lebron james all-time leader in playoff minutes and in playoff points you know he's got 4 championships he's you know he, he lebron has an unbelievable resume but he doesn't have that lore around him that that the quote unquote goat the greatest of all time have and there's a distinction in my mind between who is the best of all time and who is the greatest of all time and greatest has to do with your legacy and what you leave behind and how people think of you in the history of basketball. And there's no question that LeBron will probably go down as the number two goat. But the reason he won't be able to surpass Michael Jordan is exactly because of shit like this. It's because Michael Jordan went six of six in NBA finals in his career. You know, Michael Jordan basically never lost a playoff series outside of the year that in, in the nineties, outside of that one year that he came back halfway through this, you know, for the playoff run after he went and tried out for baseball and tried the whole baseball deal. So yeah. I'm entirely, I'm completely with you. But then to go to a, a team like L.A. and to put it on a silver
1: platter for you here, here, you're, you're going to have four or five years in L.A. You can probably win three more rings. Right.
0: Yeah. with Anthony And then Davis. we're
1: talking. OK, great. Um, maybe we we misconceived this whole go debate. Right. And then you go and pull shit like that when it's sitting there on a silver platter. For, get out of here, LeBron. Yeah. I'm done with you. get out of here. I'm tired of it.
0: Yeah. And, and again, it's tough because I I am a LeBron defender to an extent. You know, like I will always defend LeBron James, the basketball player, and I will always defend LeBron James, the entrepreneur, you know, the version for the communities like I, it's nothing, nothing to fault about any of that. Sorry. No, 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 no. You're right, because and, and that's exactly this, the distinction, because people often will cite that stuff when you criticize LeBron. And I, I find it, I find it difficult to to hold anybody in an infallible light. You know, like Michael Jordan had things that weren't great. You know, we saw moments of the first dance that put Michael Jordan in not the best light that made people look at him and go, oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Maybe I, maybe I didn't think I, maybe as for all of the thought stuff we thought we loved about Michael Jordan, there was kind of a dark undertone to that, that we didn't necessarily realize, but with LeBron, it's so much worse. Well, sorry, I shouldn't say it's worse. With LeBron, it's that we're seeing this come out in real time. We see this shit happen. And you know, yeah. I know I know the Celtics walked off the court against the Pistons. I know the Pistons walked off the court against this, the Celtics or against the Bulls, but they did it in a game seven or a game four. They did it when they lost the series and they did it in the last few minutes, which it's like, hey, or not even the last few minutes, the last few seconds. And so I think there's fair, it's fair game to criticize these guys when they do shit like that, when they pull shit like that. But ultimately I have problems with how LeBron handled that. I I just found it to be incredibly immature. I I just, I was really disappointed to see it. You know, unbelievable. Not with five minutes left
1: in the game. Five minutes left. And then you're playing across the court from a guy who's been on six teams looking for his first ring and Chris Paul, you LeBron go sons. Get out. He's supposed
0: to be like one of his best friends too. Um, Go sons. Before we go, any any other basketball takes, any other thoughts that you have about the NBA playoffs uh, as we wrap up this Friday edition of the Read Option.
1: I think the west is pretty wide open. I mean, the the Suns the way they're playing tough against the Lakers uh has really been I, I want to say surprising, but not really. Uh the Suns have played well all year and it would be really a shame uh for as as crappy as the Lakers played all year for them for the Suns to get beaten that series and uh and gift LeBron a uh a, uh, a legitimate, probably shot at uh, at the conference championship again. Uh, so I'm rooting for the Suns to play really well, not only for for all this LeBron nonsense, but uh, because the Suns really deserve it. And again, I think the West is wide open. Yeah, um, as we said, I think luka has got a legit shot. I think the uh, the Clippers are toast. They 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 just look lackluster, like like they didn't want it the other night. Um,
0: yeah, even
1: as close as that game was. And I'm really rooting for Dame, of course. Yeah.
0: Uh,
1: sorry, Denver, I love you. I'm gonna see your city in September, but uh, but I'm rooting for Damian Lillard. It's wide open.
0: I'm rooting for uh, Jokic too, though. Like that's a series where it's like I love Jokic <laughs> and I love Dame, and I- I'm cool with either one of those guys moving on. Especially like Jokic winning, the, most likely winning the MVP this year. It would kind of suck if they got bounced in the first round, but it's also like how do you how do you root against Damian Lillard? Like how how do you do that? Yeah. Like it, it's yeah, it's just it's it's borderline impossible. Uh, I'm with you, though. I'm I'm rooting hard for the Suns. The Lebr- LeBron's never lost in the first round of the playoffs. So this would be the uh, first, first time, time that he would lose in the first round, which I would love to see. But I think what we see is that I think the Lakers win game six, force a game seven in Phoenix, and that will be, I think, one of the games of of the first round, if, if not the best game, which it'll be tough to, to beat that Portland and, and Denver game the other day. Um, but, hey, a lot of fun stuff, a lot of fun stuff, including – this podcast. this podcast is included in fun stuff because we had a hell of a time. We covered everything from cicadas and fishing to Major League Baseball to Coach K and all the way up now to the NBA playoffs. So, Scotty, as always, buddy, I appreciate your time. We will be back. Tuesday will be our next podcast. Again, we're, we're hunting. We're cracking down. No more missed podcasts. No more missed weeks. Tuesday, Friday, that is when the pods will be coming out officially, uh, which has kind of been our, our – Schedule here for the last like month or so. Um, and before we go, I just want to say a, a huge thank you to everybody. Um, the last month has been by far the biggest month we've had for the podcast. I know Scotty and Vito when they come on, they appreciate it and they appreciate you guys tuning in and listening. But um, it really does. It sure means do. the, it means the world to me. It means the world to these guys. Uh, and it's just it's been a ton of fun getting to put out this content for y'all. So uh, I hope everybody has a wonderful weekend. Enjoy the weather, enjoy the beach, enjoy sitting at home on the couch watching basketball because that's what I'm going to be doing. So uh, we will be back on Tuesday, another edition of the Read Option. Have a wonderful, incredible, beautiful, immaculate weekend, and we'll talk to you then. Take it easy, everybody.
1: Go Dukes women's softball.